Hey, everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And thanks for listening. If you're looking to grow your business and get in front of a new audience, Divergent Conversations is accepting new sponsors for the 2024 seasons. We already have over 300,000 downloads and counting all over the world. And this podcast is growing all of the time. The beauty of podcast sponsorship is that you can get live pre-roll or mid-roll opportunities where we will read your ad on air while recording, getting you in front of a new audience every single week. You have the opportunity to sponsor one month of episodes at a time where you'll get four episodes in total, or you can sponsor an entire year and be the exclusive sponsor of Divergent Conversations. This is a podcast that's being distributed all over the world. The analytics are fantastic. The podcast is growing and it is a very captive audience. Reach out to us directly via the link in our website at divergentpod.com or email us at divergentconversationspodcast at gmail.com and we can get started on your sponsorship journey. Hey everyone, we are recording and we're probably going to do this a bit differently today because Megan's not feeling great, but we want to record and she is here, but um, I asked if I could just keep my video on. Um, so we'll see how this goes. We are going to start this episode off with a negative review that we got from uh, Apple reviews on podcasts because it's so poignant and specific about me. And we just got done with our three-part RSD series, so it's perfect timing. And we are about to record on substance use and addiction, so it feels even more perfect timing. Uh, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it. And yeah, so the review is a four-star review, but it is labeled Patrick Thumbs Down. It says, Anna is good. Patrick is highly annoying with his F-bombs and latent rage. He is not endearing or relatable at all. If you do not boot him off the show, could you at least ask him to quit with the cussing? It is unnecessary. Peggy, so Damn. I, I screenshot that to you and sent it to you yesterday. Yeah, brutal. Yeah, I think like my initial reactions. Damn, <laughs> like mm -hmm. so specific to me, which is always like where it hits you the worst. I think everyone is going to experience negative reviews when you have a platform, like it's just inevitable. You don't exist in an echo chamber. Um, but man, talk about stuff getting stirred up and triggered when stuff like that happens. Yeah. Wait, what got stirred up in you? It was, it was interesting when you first texted me, you're like, no, it's funny. And I was like, wow. Like <laughs> I would not be having that reaction. I'm so glad Patrick is, but I also wondered, will, it stay there or is that gonna sink in and stir some stuff up yeah i was trying i think i tried to like minimize it at first because i was like oh like it hurts obviously when you have an audience and you have a following i i don't want to always have people that are just like this is amazing this is great like but you would like for it to be like potentially constructive or hey 
I love the podcast. Not just potentially. Like, I think it's right. fair to say you'd like it to be constructive, like a calling in versus calling out kind of thing, right? Of like, hey, this is how this impacted, right? Like, I think it's fair to say you would like it to be constructive. That's fair. I think I started to pick it apart too. I was like, what? Latent rage. I think that the definition of latent and latency probably needs to be explored. Two, I don't think I ever feel rage-filled. I think I maybe sometimes am rage-filled at certain situations in the world, certain you know situations I experience, but try to keep that kind of contained and within the container of friendship and colleagues and safe spaces. So that came up. Then what came up was like, can you boo him? If you don't, kick him off the show. And then I started picking apart, like, not endearing, not relatable. And then I think so often as humans, we try so hard to ignore the negativity, but it seems like we're wired to be more focused on it because you and I get so many DMs, emails, messages talking about how great this podcast has been for them or someone they love, how transformative, how powerful, how relatable, how affirming. So we could create that like stockpile, that list of resources to to anchor into. When that happens, none of that stuff feels like it matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's what is this? There's some study of like it takes... I think in relationships, like eight positive comrades to make up for like one negative. I'm not sure if that's the exact number, but it's something like that. And then if you throw RSD, oh gosh, it's probably like a thousand positive to make up for one negative. Yeah. It's just, those just stick. The negative stick. They do. Especially when it's so specific to your person. Yeah. That's like, okay. I'm really sorry. That's, uh, you know, I'm glad we're talking about it. And I, you know, I posted it on my personal page just for feedback. And of course, the feedback was overwhelmingly positive, but I didn't just want people to be like, oh, you're great. I wanted people to be like, hey, this is what I actually think about the podcast. And I would say that the 500 people who commented were like, we love the podcast. We love your dynamic. We love that you're so different from each other. And we love how you show up authentically and how affirming this has been for me, my family, my friends, my colleagues, etc. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to focus on, you know, because ultimately in the past, something like that could have really destroyed me. And I'm glad to just be talking about it with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, like, if it had been inversed, and if you, well, first of all, please don't send it to me. I wouldn't have sent it to you. <laughs> um, but if it had been inverse, like, I would be. It's interesting. I well, and I can relate to this because I've had similar stuff on my on my Instagram, right? Like, it would be a combination of shame, shame, but then turned like anger. I think, which you know, it's always interesting. Like, how much what of that anger is my projected shame? Um, and I would not want to be here today. And I would be like, and, and this is this is the reason. See, this is one of the big reasons I turned off my comments was because those one, the 1% that are just nasty comments stick and the 99% of thank yous don't. I started getting angry toward a community I love and it was impacting how I showed up. 
So I think if it had been me that got that call, I'd be showing up being like, oh, our listeners. It's like, wait, no, our <laughs> listeners are amazing. But like that 1% could so easily have filtered how I see, quote, our listeners. Um, yeah. And that's that's really, I yeah, that's why I turned off comments was I was like, I need to save my relationship to this community to do this work. I can't be bitter toward the community I love. Um, and And... Because, yeah, it's just really hard to show vulnerably um, and then get those kinds of comments. Yeah, it should, it, I think that's spot on. So I think that it's a good, it's a good thing that it happened. I think they're, it feels synchronistic with so much of what we're doing and talking about. And I am happy to like process that and I'm glad to have support because I then look at like analytics, but that's where my mind goes. And I'm like, how many people are listening to us talk? And, you know, we, we just hit like 175,000 downloads. I feel like it was just two or three weeks ago, we had hit a hundred thousand. So the podcast is growing exponentially, which is amazing. But it also means that there's just going to be more people who can pick it apart. And I will try my best to not get impacted as much as I could. So that is my goal. Okay. Um, so this is a good transition point into our topic. Yeah. Right? Can I segue us? Or do sure. You, I think that's going to be well, I'm offering, today I'm offering, I can't see you. <laughs> sorry. I'm offering to do the social ligament thing, which usually you do. Um, no, I was, so we're going to talk about addiction. And I've shared on here before I used to have, uh, so interesting, like, and maybe we can talk about terminology in a minute. Um, yeah. The way I would describe it is an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And something like this would have absolutely triggered me to want alcohol because mm-hmm. I'd, I'd feel the shame, I'd feel the emotions, and I'd want to numb. And pretty quickly, it'd be like, I feel something I don't want to be feeling. And then I'd start fantasizing about like drinking later that night. Um, and that would be my cycle. So I think it's very connected to our topic today, which is um, unhelpful coping of our addiction, et cetera. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I think so often I default to that as well. I did not yesterday actually have been taking a break from alcohol because I've just noticed that it have increased its usage and, and frequency. So I've been taking a break, but I defaulted to watching Game of Thrones and that's kind of escapism for me. And that is typically when I know I'm in like a healthier place when I'm not defaulting to reaching for something that can immediately take away the pain or, or numb it out or to kind of escape from it. So let's define it. Um, I myself, for those of you who don't know, or am a licensed clinical mental health counselor, counselor and a licensed clinical addiction specialist here in North Carolina. So I have licenses for both. Um, I'll talk about my personal history as well with substances and processes in a second. But we, you know, we don't want this episode to be about like necessarily so much about the research behind addiction and its connection with neurodivergence. Although I'm sure there's a ton out there. We haven't done it. Um, or at least we haven't done it to the extent where we feel comfortable uh, showcasing that. We want to talk about why it's so easy for neurodivergent people to re- reach for something 
or use something that is going to take away the pain that feels like a coping strategy, which is really just a temporary strategy. It's not a long-term one by any means. So when we talk addiction, I think it's important to define dependency. I think it's important to define um, both physiological and psychological dependency. I think it's important to define tolerance and the difference between dependency and addiction. So when we talk about dependency physiologically, we're talking about our body's need for something to be able to function uh, optimally. So when you start to get to a place with alcohol or any other substance and your body starts craving it um, or you know, needing it to get through the day, we're talking about dependency. Psychologically, we're talking about what Megan just described, like I'm going to rely or depend on something psychologically to help me through something that is happening to me emotionally. Tolerance gets built the more the more we drink, the more we use, the more we gamble, the more we you know shop, the more we eat, and ultimately that can really have significant negative impact um, on our being. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is we get so many messages about substance use addiction, and twelve step isn't for me because it doesn't really help with the neurodivergent uh, process. And I agree wholeheartedly, and I'll talk about that too. And alternatives, but. I think it's what I want to talk about is why it's so easy to turn to substances or processes as someone who is neurodivergent. And I think it's because of all of our life experiences, our pain, our trauma, the way we move through the world, our sensory systems, our struggles socially. And Megan uses the word um, social lubricant or ligaments a lot. I think that that is exactly why so many people turn to substances in the first place is because they feel like they don't belong. They don't fit in. And in the meantime, in the short term, it is a temporary, and I want to highlight and emphasize temporary dopamine hit. And it is a temporary way to let your guard down and to not be so hypervigilant and to not be so anxious and to not feel so overwhelmed. And of course, it's easy to reach for something that can just give us a glimpse into the normalcy of socializing in a neurotypical world when we feel like we just don't have a landing spot. Absolutely. There's like so many way, like directions my brain could go with what you just said. That was a really helpful way to set the stage. I think there's, yeah, there's so many reasons why, why we're more vulnerable to um, these unfortunate coping strategies. That unfortunate COVID strategy, someone in my community came up with that term last week. And I was like, that is the perfect term. Unfortunate COVID I like that. strategies. Yeah. I like that. Yep. So with all of those directions, which way do you want to take it? Um, my brain's having a lot of associations, but nothing clear. Do you have a place you want to go? Yeah. I'll, I'll just set the stage with sharing a little bit about my own story. Because I think it's important to highlight where I've been and where we can go to. Um, as humans and as someone who has struggled with, well, one, we also have to talk about, we won't talk about it on this podcast, but genealogy is, you know, correlation. There's the nature of reverse nurture, the biopsychosocial model. But my family has a history of addiction on both sides. So when your family has a history of addiction, there's a higher likelihood of you also having some genetic predisposition to struggling with substances or alcohol or processes. So that has, that's a situation that I am in. And very early on, I struggled with impulse control, as a lot of us probably do. 
um, struggle with, you know, as a teenager and adolescent with just not feeling like I fit in or belonged um, socially. I didn't really have a good sense of myself at that time. I hung out with a lot of people who I would not associate with today. Um, and I, we started drinking pretty early on, probably 14, 15, experimenting with alcohol. And that obviously has um, 37 maps and 22 years of, of having that in my life. There's obviously going to be a dependency that gets developed both physiologically and psychologically. Um, gambling is what really took over my life. Um, my roommate and best friend when I was in high school, freshman year of college, and I'll just use a trigger warning right now, uh, committed suicide my freshman year of college in, my, in our dorm room suite. And I think it would have been easy to turn to alcohol at the time, but I needed escapism. And we had multiple casinos in upstate New York on some reservation land in Montreal and Canada. And both of them were about an hour's drive for me. And that's where I found myself going more and more frequently to the point of, you know, at first it's $50. At the end of it, 10 years later, it was thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to the point where once you get into active addiction, that's the differentiation between dependency and addiction is it has full control over everything you're doing. That means all of your actions through the day, your thought processes, you're always fixated on it. Um, you start to have these almost obsessive and compulsive traits and tendencies that come along with it. I would obsess about going to the casino. I would obsess about sports betting. I would obsess about going to underground poker rooms while I was in college and after that. And I just found myself getting into increasingly more and more dangerous scenarios and situations where, you know, just like the movies, just like getting in with the wrong sports book, bookie, owning them money, um, lots of bad things going on and lots of, Emotional struggles there where you push all the people who care about you away. You start self-destructing. Uh, you know that it's ruining your life, but you can't do anything about it. That's also a part of addiction where you so badly want to get out of it, but you just feel like you can't. And everything you do just digs that hole deeper. And it took about 10 years of my life. I haven't gambled since June of 2012. So it's almost been 11 years of not gambling, but... It was hard. And I think as an autistic person, there's also this hyper fixations on the inability to break away from the patterning within gambling with really seeing things. I was winning money constantly, but losing quadruple it every single night. And it leads to this self-sabotaging situation where I so often would come home from the casino at like six in the morning, up all night sleep deprived, disoriented, and then have to get up and go to work or go to college or whatever the case was. And it was such an unbelievably painful part of my life. And I want to highlight that fact that it's been 12 years without gambling. So when I was in the throes of it, there was never a part of me that thought I would get out of it. There was never a part of me that could have thought that I would be sitting here talking with you about some of this stuff. So I want to just really name that for those of you who are struggling with any sort of addiction, that you can recover and recovery is possible and it is hard and it is a long road, but it is absolutely possible. And I just want to name that because I think for so many of us in, this, in those situations, it is so easy to feel like 
nothing is ever going to improve. This is going to be the rest of my life. When will my life inevitably end? Because ultimately that's on your mind pretty often, especially gambling being a completely psychological addiction, not a substance induced one. So it was um, very, very challenging. And it started as a coping skill and it became um, controllable. And I think that's how most addictions start and develop is coping. Um, what did you say? I'm sorry, use the terminology again um, that you said. You... Unfortunate coping. Unfortunate yeah. coping. Yeah, I'm going to start implementing that. Um, it starts as an unfortunate coping skill to deal with pain, suffering, struggle, trauma, anxiety, depression, socializing, whatever. And then all of a sudden, fast forward 10 years, and you're like, how the hell did I get here? It sounds so painful, Patrick. For, like, I know you've referenced this before, but I haven't heard, I haven't heard you describe it in that much detail. And it just, I'm so sorry. It sounds so like trap like to be to be trapped in the cycle of like this is not what I want but I also can't get out of it I feel like that really does capture the addiction experience so poignantly and like you say you feel like you lost 10 years of life to that I definitely have had similar thoughts with my relationship to various addictions and it feels feels like I lost myself and therefore it feels like I lost years parts of my life which is a really talk about grief like that's something we talk about a lot the grief of what these addictions take from us yeah that's a great way to so think about it is there's a lot of grief there and a lot of people may not understand this of like there's grief of actually what your life becomes after addiction because as unhealthy as it is there are people and places and things, you know, the old cliche that have become foundational in your life in those in those uh, years and, and times. And in order to break free from it, you kind of have to separate yourself from almost all of it. And there's almost this grief of like, I remember the, what it felt like to drive to the casino by myself. I remember what it felt like to like convince myself I should go by flipping a coin in my dorm room or like if I got above a 75 on it on a paper I would go or all the, all the rituals that come along with gambling or any addiction and the manipulation that comes with it, the, the just borderline criminal behavior that comes with some of it. I remember staying up playing poker until 7am before a trip to a maximum security prison for my, I was a criminal justice major in my undergrad. I'm glad I distanced myself from that profession, but, uh, I remember going into Dan Morris maximum security prison, sitting in a group with other um, inmates. It was like a processing group. And I actually fell asleep in that group. And one of the people, one of the inmates like tapped me on the shoulder and was like, Hey, this is not the place you want to be sleeping. And I was like, Oh my God, this is horrible. Mm-hmm. And that just spiraled, you know, it just, I have so many horror stories and I'm not going to go into them because they are not that helpful. But what happened is this realization, you know, you lose so much of yourself in this moment that when you come out of it, you almost have a newfound perspective on how you want to live the rest of your life. And I committed then like to just talking openly about it because so many people have messaged me or reached out to me about their gambling addiction and 
their family or their colleague or their sibling or their loved one and, and just needing support. And there's just not that much support out there. And if you call that in terms with like process addiction plus neurodivergence, there's really not a lot of conversation being had. So, yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, so AA, like there are obviously critiques of that model, understandably, but I think that's what they do well is the um, vulnerability and the sharing and the you're not alone experience. And like, if we have one thing to thank Brene Brown for, it's this idea of the connection between shame and vulnerability. And that that is what helps eradicate shame is when we connect over these these stories and I think it is so important um and it's just I haven't really thought about you're right the like lack of neurodivergence and addiction thinking about how so many of us are already so shame-filled that I, I wonder if it makes it harder to talk about the addictions we experience um because it is yet another topic that invokes a lot of shame for a lot of people i think you're right i think that's so spot on and um yeah it is that the shame component of i already don't feel understood now i have this like extra layer of shame and stigma about behaviors or things that i can't control or things that are controlling me and i think that's a big struggle area for those who are struggling with addiction is like you kind of said as well it is that that complete and utter inability to have control over your actions or day-to-day even though you know everything is destructive i think that's the most one of the most painful pieces besides the alienation and um so if someone had dm'd us on our instagram about alternatives to 12 step and i just want to name that now while we're talking Smart recovery is the way I would go and recommend for those of you who are looking for alternatives because smart recovery is just, oh my God, I need to look up the acronym to figure out what the skills management and regulation tools. So you're really just learning how to cope. You're just learning strategies and techniques to deal with triggers and urges. You're not going down like the war story path that happens in 12 steps so often. There's also not the mentality that if you do relapse, that you are suddenly like ostracized from a group until you can find your way back. So smart recovery is at all evidence-based and science-based and it's a nice alternative for those of us who really want like the concrete steps, the rationalization, the ability to like implement and incorporate strategies and techniques. I think it's a really good alternative and it's everywhere all over the world. So you can look up smart recovery and you can find meetings in almost any, any city or any state and a lot of virtual options as well. That, I love that. Yes, that is such a great resource. And I, and I love that they teach the regulation skills because that is so many of us and like humans, not just neurodivergent people, but so many of us go to addiction as a, so it's a form of emotional avoidance and, um, and so I think learning that regulation piece of how do I handle sitting in distressing feelings and then regulating um, is such an important part of that recovery process. Um, this is kind of, I'm circling back to earlier in the conversation about why are we more vulnerable. When I was 
doing research on alexithymia, this was really interesting to me. Um, so alexithymia is linked with more um, emotional avoidance, which makes sense because we're having a hard time identifying our, our feeling. And that's linked with addiction. And so alexithymia and addiction are very linked. And so I think that's a huge piece of it. I think we are more vulnerable to emotional avoidance, which I would say is a pretty big driver when it comes to addiction is just the, I cannot tolerate this emotion. I must escape it. Um, and then I, I would say until we address that, we're going to, many of us will fall into that, um, blanking on the word today, the not cross-pollination, but cross-addiction, when you crop from addiction to addiction. Mm -hmm. um, I know for me, until I finally really addressed my emotional avoidance, it, like there'd always be some sort of addicting object in my life um, to some varying degree because I hadn't resolved the fact that I just could not tolerate to be with myself, to be with my emotional experience. Damn, that's it right there, I think, is that that just complete inability to be with self, right? Like, and that could be in so many different environments and situations, but that's really the crux a lot of the time is the struggle to connect to the emotion or the desire to avoid the emotion or sit with the emotion. And I think about so many of these things that we talk about on this podcast, right? Like socializing and social situations, uh, sleep struggles, sensory system struggles, sensory overload. Um, if you are a part of a workplace where people are getting together in person and you just really are having a hard time with how to show up or even being there or being able to, to exist there in that situation, think about all of this stuff and why that increases the likelihood that you would then therefore rely upon a substance to help you. And I'm going to just highlight alcohol because it's the most commonly used substance that we can talk about besides nicotine and caffeine and why alcohol would then therefore become the easily accessible coping skill and strategy. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many reasons, especially with alcohol. And I think that our, our systems of like the social piece, I know, like, I didn't start drinking. It's actually, I kind of think it's funny. I didn't start drinking until I went to seminary. And I often joke seminaries where I learned how to drink, um, <laughs> which it's just because I, 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 yeah, I went to a college where drinking wasn't allowed. I was raised evangelical. And then all of a sudden I'm in seminary with all these other religious people who are drinking a lot. And I'm like, oh, well, they're becoming pastors. It's okay. Um, but it definitely, I, and I would get a lot of reinforcement. People would be like, you are so fun when you drink. And I'm a pretty serious person. And because my filter would come off, my silliness, my playful side would, would come out. So I, socially, there's a lot of reinforcement for my drinking. And then sensory, that was, I really realized that in the last decade that my, I can just take in, I don't get so sensory overwhelmed um, when I have alcohol in my system. Now, I'm not going to say that's a good solution because I pay for it later. 
but that I think became a big reason that I would drink was in social spaces to be less sensory overwhelmed. Um, but yes, like all of the reasons it, alcohol just sits there as this, like, I will solve your social anxiety. I will solve your sensory. I will help your hijacked nervous system feel more soothed. Like it's this really seductive substance that frankly, our culture has a really unhealthy relationship to. And the messaging around it just makes it so easy to, to go to that. It's especially, um, okay, I'm, I'm diverging a bit, but the demographic where we're seeing like the most increase in drinking over the last 10, 15 years is, is women and, and mothers. And it's become this cultural message of like overwhelmed with your kids. Like then you get happy hour, right? Think yeah. about all the neurodivergent parents, parenting neurodivergent kids. Like that's the stressful experience. Um, so there's just our, our culture isn't making it easy to decide to abstain from this substance um and there can be so many drivers that drive us to it so true and so first you, you just said quite a few things that i want to touch on so this, this yeah, I know. Thank you, is important right like so how many of us have probably experienced a situation just like many said oh you're so much more fun when you drink you can like let go you can be silly you can joke around you don't like stare through my soul is what people often say to, say to me who don't know me when I'm socializing with them. And I've, you know, I've been described as like a wet blanket by colleagues and friends in the past. So it's like, you're no fun to be around. You're so serious all the time. Like blah, 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 blah. You're so cynical. And then if, I'm, if I was drinking, it's like, oh, you're, you're gregarious. You're fun. Like you're the life of the mm -hmm. party. My wife has often told me I have a mix and like charisma. Um, I had to look that up to be like, what does that actually mean? Uh, but I think that for those of us who are so, that feel so socially isolated or disconnected or alienated, that becomes like, oh my God, this is, this is like something that can really change my life and alter my world and allow me to fit in. So, you know, alcohol is a depressant. And for those of us who have, really activated nervous systems and sensory systems. Like it's going to dull those things out and it allows you to kind of exist in a world where not every little thing around you is impacting you. And I think that we so desperately want that so often that when you find this substance that allows you to then exist in that world, it's like, Oh, this is, this is really wonderful. Couple that with the fact that it's illegal. So there's, the ability to just have it everywhere. Then, like you said, like culturally, we promote the hell out of it. I mean, you can't turn the television on without alcohol commercials or marketing everywhere. And it's always glamorized, like, hey, let's go to this party and drink this great piece of cocktail. And like, we're going to have this wonderful time. Or it's always about connection and partying and having a great time. You never see the aftermath. You don't see like the, the depression that kicks in intensely. Like immediately after you don't see the sleep deprivation that comes with it. Even if it helps you sleep temporarily, you're not getting actual restorative sleep in, in those moments. Like there is so much destruction 
physiologically and psychologically that come with alcohol usage. And for those of you who are trying to abstain or, or maybe have some sort of minimization or, or harm reduction, which I'm a huge proponent of, it's really hard to start thinking about your world where it's alcohol free. I live in Asheville, you live in Portland. These are widely considered like some of the best craft beer cities in the world. People come to Asheville just to go to breweries, like from all over the country. And it's really hard to start imagining a world where you can be social without having to go and participate and be around assumptions that may be really destructive for you. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that goes back to like how they did. And and all situate us of like we're in the US and I think it's like probably the the most unhealthy in the US versus some other countries where alcohol is more of a collectivistic okay that's that would take us down a very different rabbit trail um but yeah in the u.s particularly um one i i read this recently and i was like oh my gosh I, this was a helpful frame like alcohol is one of the few things that you can't abstain from without a ton of questioning like when i tell people i don't eat gluten it's like fine okay cool that makes sense when I, when i tell people i'm alcohol free right like why what like yep. what's like and it's people have a hard time like when people say i don't drink like that is the one thing and we are live in a culture where we say we abstain from all kinds of things whether it's gluten and sugar but when people abstain from alcohol it can get a really strong reaction from the people around you which i mm -hmm. think is one of the reasons it can be hard to to go alcohol free. Oh, for sure. It's almost like, what's wrong with you? Like, yeah. What do you yeah. What do you mean you don't drink? Sometimes it's even followed up inappropriately for those of you who um, can become pregnant. Are you pregnant? Like, are you I trying think. not to drink because of that? Are you trying to lose weight? Like, <laughs> it's just <laughs> so intrusive. So intrusive. Yeah. Versus like. Yeah. Oh, cool. Versus like, the lifestyle. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So interesting. It's it's so intrusive. Um, again, I think the substances specifically that are legalized, and we can even talk about gambling being legal, like that creates an additional layer of shame and stigma when you are struggling with something that is illegal and accessible to mostly everybody, because it then creates this internal narrative of what the hell is wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Why can't that's that was constantly in my mind with my gambling because gambling is legal and mostly everywhere if you're over 18. Now with you know online and like legal sports betting throughout the United States, it's even easier and accessible. But it becomes this narrative of I already feel different, I already feel like other, I already feel like I don't belong or fit in. You know, I can't control this thing that in your mind, irrationally, you would say, everybody has access to you. And like, I'm one of the only people who's struggling to, to moderate this. And in reality, like, obviously not the only one, but that's what happens um, mentally. And you can really go down these really dark pathways of, you know, just berating yourself and destroying yourself because it's like, how come I cannot control this thing that is glamorized and like in 
it's promoted and marketed and accessible and legal, um, it's just really, really challenging. Yeah. I mean, it can feel like a sign of weakness. Um, I know I definitely felt that when I was trying to like navigating, like, okay, can I have alcohol in my life in any healthy way? Like, what would that look like? Of it felt like weakness if I was to say, no, I can't, because it means I can't, yeah, I can't control this thing. One of the things that really helps me in my process, um, I don't have a study in front of me, but I think it was something like 59% of people, and this is again, US-based, who drink are trying to drink less, meaning they are trying to get into a different relationship with alcohol. And I thought that was so helpful to realize like this, this substance, it's a hard thing to have in your life and have it be like manageable is not quite the quite word the word I'm looking for but have it be something that you're not actively spending a lot of labor to manage how much is it in your life just because of I I would say the nature of it um and so that was a really helpful thing for me to realize was first of all pretty much majority of people who have alcohol in their life are actively working to manage it um the other framework that has been really helpful. So I think the the binary that we've fallen into, and, and I think partly this comes from how the mental health world and addiction world, but either like you're an alcoholic or you're not, either you have a problem or you're not. And thankfully we're, we're seeing a shift away from that, but something can be a problem without your body being dependent on it. Like earlier you talked about dependence. Um, for sure. And so I think giving new language for people to be able to be like no when this is in my life it's just I I don't show up in the world the way I want to be or it's not healthy but without falling into this it means I'm in this bucket or that bucket I think that's so important so important so so important to not to try to break away from that black and white thinking which is again I am not a proponent of AA and a 12 step GA gambling anonymous because of the binary, because of the black and white. It's either you abstain or you're bad and you can't control. And I cannot get behind that mentality. So I am a big proponent of harm reduction, I'm a big proponent of moderation management when you can apply moderation management to your life. I also believe wholeheartedly that addiction is the opposite of connection. And mm-hmm. I, there's an organization here in Asheville called Seek Healing, and I, they have online programs, seekhealing.org. I'll put that in the show notes. My friend's actually one of the board members on it. And that's what they focus on is building community and connection to that combat, the desire to use any substance or allow that substance to control your life because <laughs> the ability to have connection, the ability to have community, the ability to heal that's really where this comes in and starts to play a factor. And think about, for those of you listening, who are mostly neurodivergent, community and connection can be really hard. So if it's not there, if it feels like it's not existent, if it feels like it's hard to obtain, it's gonna, there's a likelihood that you're going to reach for something to replace that and to deal with the emotional impact of having that lack of connection and community. And I think the more we can promote 
community healing and connection in general. And this is, again, again, like you said, there's a whole lot of talk about substance use addiction and neuroemergence. Try and find those places where you can connect, where you can belong, where you can be a part of, because it's monumental in combating some of these things where they may, you know, be taking over your life in a really destructive or negative way. Have you seen that TED Talk where they do the mouse study? With the, yeah. yeah, I, okay, so you can correct me if I get it wrong. It's been a long time since I saw it. But, but I think this is where I first learned that idea too of um, addiction is the opposite of connection or connection is the opposite of addiction. But where they had, they had a mouse in a cage and in the kind of drip feed was opiates. And, um, you know, the, the mice would get naturally addicted to this. And then you put the mice in a cage with other mice and with lots of playthings. And so you create a vibrant community. And all of a sudden, now they're drinking the water instead of the opiates because there's um, the thinking being like, they're, they're getting connection, they're getting play, they're getting the things they need. And so they actually, what they then long for is the water not the opiates um which and i think the person who gave that said talk um i i believe it's brazil who where they've implemented like a lot of addiction recovery around this idea of building like it's about building an enriching environment an enriching connecting environment um not more about like don't do this don't do that but it's about adding something to someone's life versus taking away that makes sense yeah and i think for that's exactly it right and i think i want to say johan hari's ted talk is all about addiction and connection and it may be the same ted talk but portugal has done a really good job of decriminalizing it's portugal i was wondering if it was brazil or portugal it's portugal yeah yeah portugal had had such a rampant rampant like drug problem for years and they decriminalized everything in the early 90s and they started incorporating like harm reduction clinics mobile harm reduction clinics going out to the community building community fostering it and you started to see not only criminal activity decrease significantly but the the rates of addiction dropping drastically because people had places to go without shame to say I'm struggling with this thing. And then here are resources, here's counseling, here's connection, here's community, here are ways that you can become employed. As human beings, this is what we're designed for is connection. And when we struggle so much because we feel different than or discriminated against or we've experienced bullying or trauma from the way our neurology is, has been developed, it's so hard to then access it without that that ability to have that safe place where you can feel understood. Because I think we all want to feel connected, valued, understood, affirmed. And without that, it's so, so easy to just mm-hmm. default to all the things that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So I live in Portland, which is decriminalized. Um, decriminalized drugs the last year and i think vancouver has done this too there's a few other studies um i watched a documentary on this a while back about how 
it's not turned out like Portugal. And that's because we decriminalized, but without emphasizing the additive, right? So without adding in the structures of connection, belonging, employment, stability. Um, and I, and I think it's pretty complicated because we've done the one, but without the other. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, that could get us into like politics and theory, but I, I'm sharing that to say like, it's, it's not, um, I think in general, it's way more motivating when we're adding something in our life than when we're trying to not do something for, for me and my journey for a year, oh, for absolutely. a long time, it was like, I'm going to stop drinking. There was a shift and I, I don't actually use the language of sobriety. I, I choose language of alcohol free, but when I realized sobriety was not the absence of drinking, but it was a choice for something additive in my life. Once I made that mental shift from try not to do something to try to do something, um, it's hard to explain, but it was, it totally changed my energy toward how I thought about it. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think the additive has to be there. Um, it's, it's like you said, much more complex than just decriminalization, especially because our country is so damn big. So, you know, that's a, that's another thing, but I like the way you reframe that language. And because for a lot of you may be listening and thinking like, I've been, I've been trying to be alcohol free or sober from whatever, but I'm white knuckling. That terminology is like, I'm not drinking, but all the same behaviors are still there. All the same emotions are still there. I'm still angry. I'm getting irritable. I'm getting frustrated with my partner. I'm reacting in a way that I don't like. And I'm thinking about alcohol or whatever the substance is all day, every day, although I'm not putting it into my body. Nothing's really changed here aside from the intake of the substance. So that's really where this community-based and connection-based healing has to happen. Like I believe wholeheartedly to combat some of these struggles like and to save our lives from potential addiction and destruction from it, we need therapy, but we need therapy from not only neurodiversion of farming therapy, but people who get the substance use or addiction world. That's a hard combination to often find. Um, we need community. We need connection. We need coping skills. We need strategies. I learned a strategy where you just have to get through 15 minutes of that urge, of that trigger, of that sensation of, I want to gamble, I want to drink. And then it will pass, like a wave coming in and out. And I remember driving past the casino like two years ago here in North Carolina. There's one like 45 minutes away. And I was by myself. I was in bad headspace. I drove past it. And I just remember thinking like, it would be so easy at this stage in my life for me to walk in, to gamble, to use my business debit card instead of my personal one. My wife would never know. I would never have to tell her. And then all of a sudden, like that heightened sensation of, ooh, you can take out X amount of money. You only have to take out this much. You leave your debit card in the car. Mm -hmm. All the old habits and behaviors started resurfacing. All I did, I sped my car up. I called someone on the phone. I talked to them. I was very honest with them about what was happening. We talked for about 15 minutes. I got through it, continued on my journey and, and on my way. And... um for those of you who have that ability to just try really hard for 15 minutes, call someone, talk to someone like anywhere you can, just to deal with that urge, that trigger, that sensation that comes over you because it can feel so powerful. Like you can't escape or you can't say no. I had a similar situation 
when I was in New Orleans a couple of years ago with some friends, I was meeting a friend for a New Orleans Saints game and I was walking down the street by myself. I saw the sign that said like Harris Casino left super down right. And I stood there for like 15 minutes. And again, that's the thing. We can't escape temptation. We can't escape these urges. We can't escape these triggers. They are everywhere in life and just incorporating coping skills and strategies and being able to talk to someone and walk right instead of left. Because I know what happens is maybe the first time where you go back to that world, it's fine. It's exciting. Oh, I had control over this. But then the urges, the thoughts, the emotions, the, the, the feelings start to resurface and intensify. And then it's like this snowball effect. And all of a sudden you no longer have control. So just trying to emphasize the point that we can learn how to cope with these things. We can learn coping strategies. We can incorporate and build in support systems and just to use them instead of, you know, trying hard not to feel the shame and the embarrassment of reaching out for support when those things happen. Because had I had gone blessed, you and I may not be talking today because I don't know where that world would take me again, but I know it would not be good. But I do want to emphasize that here we are 12 years later and life has changed significantly for the better. And that is not something that I had ever anticipated or expected. Hmm. Well, that, yeah. I'm curious. I know we're getting toward the end of the hour, but like, how, how did you get out of it? Oh man. Um, I'm actually writing a book on that. I have like 150 pages of it, but I keep avoiding it. I don't know why. Um, I'm curious about that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'll send it to you. Um, how did I get out of it? Lots and lots of failures, lots and lots of relapses, lots and lots of blips of abstaining from gambling, lots of therapy, lots of lying to my family, um, lots of enabling from my father who just kept bailing me out financially. And then I moved to North Carolina in 2011 was still gambling really heavily. I was running out of money, though. I came here. I had been trying so hard. I think this is the big thing that my clients used to ask me, like, how did you stop? You have to want to stop. That's first and foremost. And you are actively trying to get out. And you keep trying, and you keep trying. And a lot of the times, it just, just you keep falling back into the same pattern of behavior. And the more work I did on myself and the more I came to just try to love myself or at least feel like I was worth saving. Every time I relapsed became that much more painful, but it also became that much more of an internal challenge. Like I have to stop this. And I remember the last time I gambled, I had driven to the uh, Cherokee casino uh, in, in the Cherokee nation over here. And I spent my last $250 that I had to my name. And I had no money for rent. I had no money for gas. I had no money for anything. I didn't have a job. And that was it for me. It was that long, isolating, lonely, one-hour drive back in the mountains at 4 a.m. where I was just like, I cannot do this to myself anymore because I'm 25. And if I continue on this path, I'm not going to see 30. And that was just the light bulb moment. And everyone I've talked to has different times where that Aha or epiphany moment has kicked in. I had abstained for two years in Gamblers Anonymous and like went right back to it. 
So there were so many moments where I had abstained, but never where I had really meant it. And I think it was just a combination of so many things. Um, and just saying like, if I continue on this path, I don't get out of it. I don't survive it. And I really want life to be different. And I feel like I deserve for life to change. And it was still really hard. I mean, those first couple of years without money, without resources, with a lot of damaged relationships. But I think it's just about there were still some support system in place and in my corner and utilizing therapy services and being really honest about what was going on, not lying, not manipulating, not telling them what they want to hear. I'm just really coming to terms with the fact that I had done so much destruction in a decade's time. Even the process of rebuilding credit, you know, you destroy it because you just take out loans and credit cards and all the things that was like a seven to eight year period where I finally have gotten it back to like a 750, 800, but it took almost a decade to, to write all of the wrongs and, and bad decisions that I had made from 15 to 25. And, I, I wish I had like a clear answer, but I think it was just a combination of all of those things and culmination of just trying for a decade to get out. I actually like that you don't have a clear answer because I think sometimes the like recovery narrative, and again, even the recovery narrative uh, can be harmful because it doesn't normalize harm reduction, which right. sometimes is somewhat narrative. Um, but okay, the whether it's a harm reduction narrative, cuddly narrative, it often is complicated. But sometimes the ones that get told are this like I had, I had this one epiphany, and then I never went back. Or actually, one I've seen in the neurodivergent world is like I learned I was autistic or ADHD, and I got, and I got clean. And I, I think, first of all, I think that's so powerful, and I love that, and I it makes sense to me that it can have that impact but for some but for some of us that's not our story and so i think that can also be like oh well i learned i was autistic but i kept struggling or i um so yes these really clean narratives i think can set us up for more shame so that's a long way of saying i like that your story is not clean and that it was a process a process of relapse and persistence and support and rebuilding, rebuilding. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I hope all this was helpful for all of you. And, you know, I think, again, we could go in so many different directions and different pathways, but just want to normalize the struggle too, and that things can change and can, things can get better. And that therapy works and community and connection are important and crucial. And again, try to work through that shame that that complete and utter desire to have that control back. So the more you can talk about it, the more vulnerable you can become, the more you can kind of take that power back from that shamefulness too. So my voice is almost gone. <laughs> I, so that's our, you know, that's, that's probably our cue. Yeah. I, I appreciate that you having this conversation today. I know I just want to thank you personally, like live and on air, because I know I've asked you to have it a, a bunch of times and, I know it's a vulnerable one and, and one that is just a challenging one to sometimes talk about. So I just want to thank you again for, for doing this today. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad we did it. And 
I'm glad you pushed me beyond the like, Nathan, Anna, you don't need to have all of it. That's ready to go before we pass this. Because <laughs> um, you're right. Like, I don't. We don't. Does bring up like the desire to to figure out something that we could offer for people that incorporates like neurodivergence and and just mm-hmm. recovery and harm reduction or whatever that looks like. But maybe that's the community we build. Now we've talked about building a community. There, there, the other thing I want to plug is there's a lot of really cool sober queer spaces, and and I know a lot of neurodivergent people are queer, so I think that would be another place if people are looking for places to plug in that might be more what they're looking for and if they're queer um there's some really thriving queer sober spaces um or queer recovery spaces but yeah i think a neurodivergent space yeah that would be i don't know of anything like that well that resonates for those of you who are listening let us know um because if there's enough demand then we will figure out a way to build it. Or maybe they can build it. Maybe we maybe we don't have <laughs> yeah. Maybe we don't have the energy to but, do all. But we will amplify it if someone else. We will amplify it. it. I like that. <laughs> all right, y'all. For everyone listening to Divergent Conversations, new episodes are out on Fridays on all major platforms on YouTube. Like, download, subscribe, and share. We'll see you next week. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist, to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.